Mishka Shabali is catching up with friends who are arguably more talented than him. Hey, it's Mishka. How are you, gang? How you doing? I am so fried. I am so sleepy. Uh, old uh, old grandpa dad stayed up late last night. I went to go and see uh, Dracula's Mike Weeby's. One of Mike Weeby's too many bands uh, who were playing in Phoenix last night. Went to go and see them. And then I stayed up past midnight and I've turned into a sleepy little pumpkin. Um, so this uh, this intro will either be very long or very short, depending on where I peter out. Um, lots of good stuff in the pipeline. Andy Awancio, uh, will be performing live in my side yard in Phoenix, Arizona on, uh, Saturday, September 24th show starts at 8 PM. It is, uh, there's no cover. We're just going to be passing the hat to, you know, to pay the comics. I would have half a jug of, uh, plastic vodka. I will be donating to the cause. I'll probably buy some uh, really god-awful beer um for your for your drinking pleasure and um yeah if you're in if you're in town uh drop me a message and uh please come please come and hang out these shows are always um special weird cool intimate uh unlike other uh comedy shows my friend uh, rad pinkert who's been on the podcast he'll be performing Critical Miss, uh, Colin Galitko, who you know, of course, the hilarious producer of this podcast. Um, Jacob Erdman will be on the bill coming through from Colorado. Who else? Uh, Critical Miss. Did I say Critical Miss? Adam Baith. Um, yeah, I think that's it. I think that's everybody. The um, My guest on the podcast today, I you may have noticed that I'm dipping hard and often into the the comics who will be at altercation. Um, this is uh, the weekend of October 22nd uh, in awesome Texas, and some of my favorite comics in the country and some of my closest friends will be there performing, and I will be there too. Um, so if you're in Texas, you should, you should swing by it. Um, that kick butt coffee it's it's really it's a comedy festival with a vibe like no other um so yeah if you're around please come out um one of the people who will be at altercation is uh jason oin who's uh, our guest on the podcast today um i say our the royal hour um jay is uh i I, I always hit this uh, hit this note maybe too hard or too often. He and I have almost nothing in common. The um, I think we have very different musical tastes, different different uh, fashion sensibilities, um, different uh, different everything, different ska, different worldview. He's he lives in New Hampshire um, and he's allowed to leave the state and uh, and I, I have a special special dark loathing in my heart for New Hampshire um, one of the things that binds me together with Jay Shinoin is that he is just a fucking incredible comic he's so good um, and he does he does this thing that 
um, there's a lot of comics who are like, um, oh, I hate the Republicans, I hate the Democrats, I hate the libs, I hate my wife, I hate my kids, and it's fucking exhausting. Um, I remember when Louis C.K., you know, when his sitcom was a thing and people were like, oh, you should watch this. And I watched it and I was like, no, he just shits on everything. And I do that too much already. So it's emotionally exhausting for me to turn on a TV show and watch more of that. Uh, Jay also hates everything, but he hates it with joy in his heart. I don't know how else to put it. Um, Jay very exuberantly hates many things about um, uh, this country, this culture, this world, this experience. And uh, I don't know. I, I fucking love it. It makes me laugh. He's, uh, he's, he's an incredibly nimble, adept comedian. He moves through a lot of subjects very easily. Um, so, yeah, thanks for tuning in and uh, enjoy this conversation with Jay Shanoin. Uh, welcome to the show, Jason Oyn. How are you, buddy? Yeah, I'm all right. Thanks for sure. Yeah, thanks for <laughs> yeah, having me. I, I like that you went I'm into here. you went into thanking me. And you're like, ah, I'm gonna wait and see how this turns out, and uh, then <laughs> I'm, you're welcome. Is what I, mean. <laughs> I uh in the half hour leading up to this, I was like, oh, I'm just going to scroll through Jay's feed and the, you know, see if there's a couple of like things that, you know, for us to chat about. And then, um, as I'm, I was scrolling back, I was like the, uh, man, it's weird that Jay and I are friends. You know, there are so many things that we just you do not see eye to eye on. And then, uh, I was like, man, it's, it's really bizarre that we're friends. And then I scrolled back deeper and I was like, are we friends that like, man, what the fuck? The, taking shots at Alice in Chains you're you're an earnest proponent of ska the um you've you've committed the irredeemable sin of any comic of being a better musician than I am which that that hurts like nothing else so first off let me commend your way to kick this off where I was like I still don't know how I feel about agreeing to do this by just being like I'm not sure why we like each other I was scrolling through your personality and I, I am not satisfied the and uh and you're coming to us uh oily and live from uh New Hampshire my uh probably my I don't know New Hampshire right up there with Arizona for my least favorite states in the union yeah, you mentioned it a bunch when you did an <laughs> awesome show in this state. You complained during that show that you probably had to come back because of how good that show went. That actually that was a great show. That was a fantastic show. I'm I'm resentful of how good yeah, that show was. Yeah, because maybe the state's not the problem, Mishka. <laughs> oh my god. Um Jay, how are you? How have you been? The, I feel like the last time I saw you was altercation last year or two years no, ago. No, it's twenty eighteen. Was the only time that I've done altercation until this year. Jesus Christ! What's wrong with JT? Only uh, he's working you in like the Olympics. I was supposed to be there in two thousand twenty, and then some shit happened. And actually, I was just telling uh, yes. Josh McLean of Heels, previous guest of yours, which I do want to tell you that. Uh, I'm very happy to be guest like 36 on your show because it's a very, very clear definition of where you rank me in your list of <laughs> of how talented and famous your friends are. 
but no, I was I was saying to Josh that you and I also had a short run planned for 2020 that obviously didn't happen for reasons. And we yeah. were going to go up into Canada and stuff. And I was telling Josh about the contract that you sent me because we were going to be doing like a community theater in Boston, Massachusetts. And oh, they sent God. you a 15 page like conduct agreement saying that we would not marginalize or microaggress anybody while we were on stage. And I was like, you didn't tell me where it was for. I was like, what venue is this for? If it's Boston, I am never going to stop laughing. And you were like, yeah, it's actually, it. you were like, yeah, actually it is. It's, it's Boston. And I was like, fucking Boston, Boston, like, fuck you. Fuck your mother. Boston, Massachusetts gave us 15 pages of don't be too grouchy towards people while you're on the stage. Yeah, the I I mean, I feel private guilt. Well, I feel private guilt about everything, but I feel private guilt about the pandemic that I somehow caused it by actually booking a show in Boston, which I the last time that I played Boston, uh like Boston proper was legit 20 years ago, and it was one of the most profitable shows I've ever played because a drunk driver hit me going the wrong way on a one-way street and uh the, she just wrote me a check for a thousand dollars and then like took off into the night and that's how I paid. I was about to say that's the proper Boston experience, but getting money from the person who hit you is not part of it. Yeah, that's not yeah, supposed to be part of the Boston equation. Yeah, that was. Um, I don't know. My 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 sort of shakedown instincts just uh, kicked into high gear immediately, where I was like, I can. I can get a meal ticket out of this. But yeah, a very nice woman reached out to me about playing the show in Boston and I always said I would never go back there. And the and and this is the you know, the the pain and suffering that I have wrought by going back on my word. The So I, so I have you to thank for for all the canceled shows. Yeah, basically I I I I feel like I ruined everything. The um I there's so Every I have to I have like three rejoinders to everything you've said. The thirty six is an auspicious number. It's sort of like being in my MySpace top eight. The because you're gonna make it in the the year in which I do this podcast, in which I like fold at the end, where I'm like, man, fuck it. The I'm I'm sick of doing a thing every week that's not like taking a shower or something like that. The um to to continually be. To continually be making stuff, to be a successful artist, just it's like some weird monkey's paw shit of just you must constantly be promoting. And it's it's so fucking exhausting. Uh, to do it without a day job, yeah. To make it be like your profession, you can be just constantly cranking stuff out without showing it to anybody, which when you talk about my music, that's exactly what I do. I don't. I'm not a musician because I make that shit and then I listen to it and go, ooh, that sounds cool. And then that is as far as that goes. So you're saying I should get a job and make my life harder and worse to make it better. I mean, I guess um, if I worked at the DMV all day, I, I would fucking jump at the opportunity to go to a, an open mic or like drive six hours to go and do a show or something like that. I have got. I don't know why soft. you're immediately jumping to, well, if I'm going to get a job, it will have to be at the most miserable place <laughs> on the face of the planet, obviously. <laughs> Jay, that's what I do. That's what I do. I know, which is <laughs> why when you were like, my life would have to be harder, I'm like, we've all heard you talk, man. I don't think... I don't think you're capable of acknowledging that it gets worse ever. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I just I'm, I'm I am like a very worst case scenario guy, like right out of the gate. Um, the let's talk about your music. The because I I really dig it, man. The uh, and this is sort of a um, a closeted identity of yours, or soft closeted. The I've known about your, you know, I I knew about your music beforehand, and I've actually listened to it before. The but when um, when you are doing the filthy thing that we all do of promoting ourselves, the you're generally promoting your comedy. The yeah, because that's the thing that I care about and that I want <laughs> that I want to promote and uh, like that I tour with and everything. And the music really, it, it's a hobby. Um, and by the way, if we could backtrack just a little bit when you said I am like a worst case scenario guy, that's why we're friends, Mishka. Right <laughs> I, I know, I know. I was like, I just the negativity I, I is the bomb that stumbled holds on us the together. common ground right there. Well, and also in the email that you sent me about this podcast, like prep me to be ready to do it. You run down like I'm not going to like pry you for information, but here's some of my favorite <laughs> topics to talk about. And I was like, I'm a fucking depressed recovered drug addict <laughs> uh like all the i hit all the points that you wanted to talk about i also was like gee this is gonna be a hoot i'm glad these are all the things you want to talk about <laughs> it's a comedy podcast about you know cutting and despair and the and just giving up you know the um so i imagine that you're probably a cars fan oh yeah a huge cars fan the you know like maybe the cars devo brian eno Mm -hmm. um did you ever listen to music uh not a whole lot i do a lot of investigating into kind of like like synth rock and synth music of yesteryear so i definitely know them i haven't done my deep dive there yet uh the latest one is fad gadget i've been really into lately okay the so and when you're putting like when you're assembling tracks how do you how do you th- put it together? Is it um, st- stuff you're all doing in the com- in the computer, or or are you playing live too? Or now it's mostly on the computer with like MIDI stuff and instruments and samples. Uh, I do have synth hardware and drum machines and stuff. I used to actually up until 2020s when I got a good computer that I could do this with, and decided I was going to start learning digital music production. Before that, I had. One of those huge HD eight track recorders with a CD burner in the side of it that looks like a mixing board that goes on your desktop. Like the VS sixteen eighty, something like that. What what did it you was, have? It was a Zoom. It's in the other room. I could go get it, but it's a it's a two hand <laughs> carry. It's a heavy. Yeah, board. yeah. I man, I remember all that shit. I mean, I I still I have like a four track on the wall behind me. I have an eight track reel to reel. The I remember Tascam four track is how I started with with cassette. That was my first. Home yeah, I think I, I think that was endeavor. a gateway drug for so many of us. And I I remember at the time it just being like the technology fucking stunned me. Like you can put four different channels on a cassette tape. Like this is this is wild. We we're fucking living in the future, you know. Um, that was well and then mine because four wasn't ever enough would have like 19 of the cassette tape hiss stacked on top of each other because (laughs) i would just keep reducing them down and adding more tracks beyond the four that it was trying to limit me to yeah yeah the uh i my my first four track recordings were with friends of mine at school and i and we were probably like whatever 16 17 18 and their um one of their favorite party stunts was (laughs) 
like when we, you know, we'd have a bunch of people over, they'd hook the four track up to the stereo and then just solo my vocals. <laughs> and it was just like a, my, my own little teenage Abu Ghraib. The, it was, yeah, it was the worst. beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I'm so a big fan of dead technology. I love all that stuff. Yeah. I actually, I tried to make a record with, that was just, I, I was like cat sitting for Lanigan for a couple of weeks uh, a couple of years ago, 2019. And I was, I was like, okay, all right, I'm, I'm just going to make a fucking four track record because there's, there's too many options with digital recording. And I was like, I'm just going to simplify it. And one of the things that I found when I sat down to record is that man, it's not that it's not that simple to record to a four track. Like there's all sorts of, one of the things I found was that I had to have the microphone like 10 feet away from the machine itself because the, um, the noise of the, the wheels spinning on the fucking tape track was so loud that it would pick it up. It would make its way into the microphone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then most of what I'm doing now, you know, I, I think, um, I think a lot of us sort of were like, okay, fuck it. Now I'm going to learn to record. I'm like, I've watched all the porn on the internet. Now it's time to learn how to like make music with my computer, I guess. I don't know the, um, so I've, I started recording stuff with garage band and I'm, uh, shocked and appalled with how fucking easy it is to to cobble you know to throw a beat up and to cobble a song together and um yeah everybody's gonna be doing it now i was saying recently that if i had like a time machine and i were to go back and talk to myself like 20 years ago and tell him what the future is like he would be so disappointed to learn that we're like done with porn at this point and what we watch on the internet now is like people stretching out a grilled cheese to show how much it sticks together <laughs> Uh, Brennan from heels and I are always like just trading shit that we find the, and, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's weird to think that porn is boring now. 13 year old me would be, would be mighty, mighty disappointed in me. It's background stuff, man. It's, uh, it's friends reruns. (laughs) Um, so you're doing a, you're going to do a DJ set at altercation this year as well. Uh, yeah. So like quote unquote DJ set, this is kind of secret stuff too, but I don't think too many oh, people what? listen to this. So I'm not that worried about talking about it. <laughs> Thanks. This is, uh, uh, we're one of the corporate sponsors of altercation. This is, so that's, that's great. This can be the place where we, I'll shout my credits in the woods. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's. It's the best way to describe it as DJ set. So here's the deal is that I have not done a live music performance since I was in a band about 20 years ago. I play bass in a punk band and the music I make has always been at home and like home recording and stuff. And then when I got the the computer set up and the digital stuff and it's a lot more electronic like what I've been doing and it's very uh a subgenre of it that is called synth wave. That's very like music from video games in the eighties. Kind of not all the way chip tune, but like kind of like that, that arcadey vibe. And that was what I was starting to do and using uh, Ableton live, which is like EDM producer recording software. And there's a separate recording screen from other like DAWs and digital recorders that kind of sets it up where you have your, samples and your loops but it's not just a hit play full song that was recorded it's all broken up you can kind of key any of them up whenever you want and mix them all together into making a song so i was like that's what i could do when when jt asked me if i would do a a music set at altercation i said what i would be able to do is kind of 
like a DJ set of my own songs that I've recorded. I could perform them by launching clips, but I had like a couple months to do it. I was like, I'm not going to be ready to actually perform songs as a one man band by by fall. And he was like, cool, I want you to do that. Like they have an awesome smoke machine and light show at the venue. And I was like, I mean, it sounds really fun, but this also sounds like a lot more work than I was prepared to do at altercation and he recently was giving me the rundown of uh of the shows he was talking about the comedy set that i'll be doing and he said no pressure and i was like i don't feel any thanks for telling me but i'm good and then he was like and then this music show and you'll open that and i was like there's the pressure that's because i haven't done that in in a really long time I'm delighted to hear that you're doing it because the um, I, I'm always uh, really self-conscious about bringing a guitar up on stage during what's you know purportedly a comedy show. But you're doing the cardinal sin of uh, DJing your own music, um, so that makes me feel like sort of less of a uh, an outcast. Oh, you want to talk cardinal music performance sins? I'm also doing the like girl talk thing where it's like, why are we just watching a dude on his laptop right now? This isn't <laughs> fun. Uh, will you be doing like high kicks or anything like that? Oh, I'm I'm definitely. I actually said to JT the other day because uh, he wants me to wear a mask, of course, and I was like, <laughs> I'm I'm looking at him, but I was like, I guarantee you, it comes off after about thirty seconds because I'm going to be sweating a lot. Because when I dance, I'm sitting talking to you right now, and I'm breaking a sweat. When I dance, it comes out. Uh, and he was like, do it for the art. It's like 25 minutes. You can suffer. And I was like, okay, arms folded in the back of the room. When is the last time you moved your body to music? You don't know. It's uh, it's so funny that like JT is out on the road with, uh, with Eddie Pepitone right now because it's like, okay, so uh, which one of you is the fragile old man shouting at clouds? Uh, oh, why do you think they get along so well? <laughs> I yeah, the, I hate it. I hate it too. Yeah, the yeah di- no, harmony and disharmony. He's the, been geriatric since I met him in his thirties, and he's totally one of those people. I was saying this about like parents, but it applies to him as well. That was always older than me, so I always heard him complain about how much getting older hurt. And then now I am the age that he was when he was complaining about that. And I'm not allowed to complain about it because he's older and it hurts more. So now I don't get the he got to do complaining at 36 that I don't get to do because now he's pushing 50 and it hurts a lot. Yeah, the he is pushing 50. He's, uh, I like to remind people that JT is actually older than I am. The, our birthdays are like whatever, two days apart and also one year um, something I will never let him forget. The take those take those petty victories where you can. Um, I I'm actually I'm delighted to hear that you have a sordid past of playing bass in a punk band because I feel like you couldn't you wouldn't be a bona fide comedian without some secret punk rock past. Uh, please tell me more about this band and and how did you how did you fall from the uh you know the heights of being a musician to being a lowly comedian actually it started if i can blow your mind with stand up comedy when i was 12 years old i did uh stand up at church talent shows for a few years do you do you please tell me you remember some of your bits um i don't really i know that i remember having one about school cafeteria food the first time i ever did stand up which is when i was 12 uh, they were also at church talent shows, so it was my act was very different from what it is now. They were family friendly and everything. 
I um I had uh, Andy Oancio on the podcast, and she said um she has there's a clip. Which I I don't I don't know why I haven't watched it yet. I guess it's on YouTube of her doing comedy in like the third grade or something like that. Which is that's going far enough back that it's no longer embarrassing. It's just fucking awesome. And yeah, I, um, and it's. It's a fun flex to be able to have on people that are like, I started when I was 20. You're like, I started when I was 12. It's not a big deal. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, but no, then I discovered drugs and uh, was like, fuck comedy. Fuck making people laugh. Let's let's get high and make noise. Uh, and I had a bunch of friends that were in, surprise, a ska band in Derry, New Hampshire that I hung out with. And uh, when the ska band was breaking up, half of them formed a kind of like horror punk, uh, borderline hardcore band. It was called SH5. Uh, it stood for Slaughterhouse 5, but we never called ourselves that. And then uh, their bassist was one of my best friends who had been in the ska band called The Takeouts. And when he stopped being their bassist, uh, my other best friend was the guitarist, who was like, why don't you learn all the bass lines? And I did. Um, so I joined the band and... It was just like like three years, I think, that we were together when I was in the band before we broke up. But uh, yeah, it was like a like a horror punk kind of AFI when they sounded like they wanted to be the new Misfits, kind of in that vein. Okay. Uh, d- do you miss it at all? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, not even a little bit. Uh, I mean, sometimes, like, when you're at a show and you're having a great time in the crowd... And you've ever had the experience of being on the other side of it. Sure. There might be a moment of wistful uh, memory of, boy, it it sure was fun being on on that side, looking out at all the faces. But no, man, there's so much. There's so much that goes into it that's not fun. There's so much. Being in a band for me and to answer, how did you end up at comedy? Because I'm the asshole that wants everything to be under my control and uh or at the very least the way that it's supposed to be and dependable and with a with a band of dudes in their 20s that like chewing up fistfuls of pills on stage that was me by the way i Uh, I was gonna say that usually Um, in a dress uh i was i was the basis so it was much more about that it was much more about let's let's have fun and make a spectacle the, I was always the bass player too because the I w- always I wanted to be the guitar player, but it, it's sort of like the you know where they where the kids are playing with Lego and then there's the special needs kid and they're like here we have Duplo for you. The I was just so shit faced all the time that I, it's like they I got I got reverse promoted to bass guitar because it had fewer strings and it was harder for me to get my fingers underneath them. You know the sure. <laughs> And, and and bass players have a rich history of just being uh, just being fucked up the entire time and not contributing anything to the show other than the threat of violence or something, you know. Yeah, you're you're the one who jumps around because you don't have yeah. that much to think about. Yeah, yeah. With <laughs> with no power comes no responsibility. <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah. There, I mean, there was a while there in New York where um, I I got into bands just because I had a van. Like the audition was like, so that's the van, huh? All right, cool. You're in, you know? Yeah. That's, I mean, they knew what they needed. It was (laughs) someone who can haul gear and stand there. 
I do I do miss it sometimes, but then uh I, I, I just saw Idols recently. Is this band uh-huh. on your radar? Uh the, yeah, and I, I actually saw you post about that. One of my favorite things about that band is the bass player. And I, I, I feel like um yeah, I mean, it reminds me of a lot of bands that I, you know, sort of cut my teeth on, like uh, Fugazi and the Birthday Party and stuff like that, where the the bass was a huge part of the band's sound. And seeing them live, the it was like all about the bass. It was, you know, so propulsive, and he had you know shitloads of fucking fuzz on it. And I was so and <laughs> was over, and we walked out. I was like, oh wait, now he's loading those like two svt stats or whatever the <laughs> fuck it is the, it's like nah, first man. off i'm not gonna let you say it's all about that bass without pointing it out and making fun of you for it but <laughs> i also love the idea that after the show where you were like the bass is the best part of this band you were imagining him loading i hope everyone's gear back into whatever <laughs> dude when when i worked at the knitting factory in new york there was um, there were three stages. There was like the main floor, and then there was the basement, and then there was like the sub basement. And the sub basement was the smallest venue, so it would be all the like uh, Long Island, uh, like fucking spin kick hardcore bands, and they would all show up with full Marshall stacks, the eight you know eight by ten SVTs, and the like drum cage to play a room that fit you know fucking thirty people. And watching these like fifteen year old kids like fucking lugging this shit up and down the stairs, I was just like, just cackling. <laughs> uh, I miss it. Um, so I don't know whether to follow up about drugs or comedy. The which let's talk about drugs first. The um, what what was your what was your gateway drug? When were you like, oh fuck yeah, this is what I'm gonna do? Like which drug so, was the one that popped for you? Uh, I mean, the first. Besides alcohol, the first uh, drug, if we really go all the way back, and my mom hates when I say this, when I was very young, when I was like four or five years old, if I was too hyper at bedtime, she would give me a tablespoon of Dimatap to try and calm me down. Fuck yeah. Dimatap is a delicious grape Kool-Aid in a spoon, and it is wonderful, and I learned that that was why she was giving it to me, was because I was rambunctious at bedtime. I, like, heard her say it to a friend. Parents, you always think your kids aren't listening when you say stuff like this. Oh, when he's not tired, I just give him time tap. I'm like, that's how I get it? So I just acted more hyper than I was actually feeling at bedtime because I wanted that sweet grape nectar. And I told her once, you taught me everything I know about drug addiction when I was, like, 25 because of time tap. She was like, don't say that to me. But the- then I hate... uh. To, to be a person who's like, because I still love weed. Weed's the drug that I still do. And I hate to be like, there's validity to the the gateway drug thing and it, it being a door into worse things. But I mean, it was absolutely within a year or two that I was drinking and smoking weed that I was like, well, let's try the rest of it. I mean, I, I, I don't think that's on weed as much as it is on the like the drug education that we got where we were like, you know, you know, where it's like I, you know, a man smoked weed once and he went, you know, he had a seizure and then he was in a coma for seven years, you know, and then you smoke weed and you're like, well, I'm I'm dumb now, but I'm, you know, but it went away and now I'm now I'm hungry and you lied to me. <laughs> For sure. And there's also like a million different uh, factors in the story that I am really telling you where uh, I was raised like a in a really strict born again Christian household and was a very sheltered kid where a lot of stuff was just flat out off limits. And like the, 
music and movies and books that I took in were like regulated by a lot of like people that were just members of the church would like have opinions on it and stuff. So there was there was a big rebellion thing going on in my teens and a uh, inviting of the secular world into into my life in a very grand fashion where it was like, well, let's just let all of it. Let's open the floodgates that have been held closed for my entire childhood. Uh, and, you know, drugs were kind of just in that in that wave. And boy, did I like them. And then I <laughs> uh, whenever people are like, what was because I do for a very long time, I did not say that I was an addict or that I ever had a problem because there was never one specific thing that I was going to every day or like having withdrawals if I didn't get it. But there was like a seven year period where I was never uh, sober for an entire day by choice. So it was it was years after I had stopped doing uh, everything besides smoking weed that I actually acknowledged, okay, that that probably still falls within the realm of drug problem. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, there's that like mental addiction and physical addiction. And the my thing was always alcohol because the, I don't know, it's it's weird for for that to be, I just loved it. It just resonated with me more than anything else. The And eventually, you know, I went on to sort of like try everything and anything I could find. But um the i it's it's interesting about your um born again childhood the and, and what you're describing to me mimics the experience that i saw again and again with straight edge kids who were like oh yeah you know the um never done it never will and then like monday they have a cup of coffee totally and then tuesday night they have a bud light Yep. And then Friday they, they're dropping acid, and Saturday they try heroin. You know where it's yeah. they uh, they've just sort of flattened out the whole experience of intoxicants, so that they seem they see it as a binary of either you know you're straight edge or you're not, and it's all the same. And right. then they would wind up fucking strung out or smoking crack or shit like that. It's so similar to that because it is you know in the in the born again Christian church you're taught that the the evils of the world are like Satan trying to attack you and, and test your faith and everything. Uh, and you, you keep it out of your life. You don't, you don't invite it in because it's welcoming, uh, your own struggles and questioning of your faith. And it's welcoming the devil attacking your faith and all of that. It's certainly not requiring yourself to think these things through and defend your beliefs so that you actually believe them. That's not what it is. It's just Satan attacking you. Uh, but it's, it's very similar to what you're saying that it's, there's a binary setup where there's good and there's evil. And once you, as a 15, 16 year old kid feel like you've cracked that forbidden door open, all the monsters are, are back there. And you're like, you shake one of their hands and he's kind of cool. So you're like, well, everybody come in, let's do this. (laughs) Everybody get in the pool. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Get in loser. We're trying Coke. So (laughs) It is very funny, though, that you say that alcohol was like your your one vice that really, really resonated with you and that you always stuck to. Because I think everyone does have one of those that uh, it just feels like your style. I've actually been saying recently and working on a bit where I talk about how because I don't drink anymore either. That wasn't hard for me to quit because that was never my vice. I was never an alcoholic. I didn't even like being drunk that much because all the like main ingredients 
that go into the high experience of drunk are my least favorite ingredients in other highs that have other things going on. Like drunk is just the the dizzy and headache and slurring and bumping into shit and having a dumb brain part. And if I'm going to be that kind of fucked up, I also want to be like tasting colors and talking to fire hydrants. Like why the vertigo is not what's fun of being fucked up to me. I I had I've had like many epiphanies um over the years that finally contributed to me, you know, uh quitting drinking. But one I remember was like, you know, just being hung over one day watching some outdated I don't I don't know if it was like a National Geographic thing or uh, some travel channel thing, but it, you know, it was a um it was a shot of a woman, um, you know, on the plains in sub-Saharan Africa, moving very, very slowly. The and the um, like moving so slowly, it was like she was underwater. And you know, the guy, the guy was talking about sort of you know chronic malnutrition and the you know the sort of like diseases and parasites that you know just an av- average African person in Africa suffers from. The um, and you know, the you know, sort of like constant diarrhea and dizziness and the uh, lethargy. And I, I just looked at it and I was like, same, same. <laughs> like, the, and then I was like, oh, uh, uh, maybe, maybe, nah, nah, not yet. <laughs> give, give me 10 more years, you know, the, and then maybe I'll be ready to change. But the, but that was kind of the, the seed of doubt when, when it got planted for you that just started. Well, I mean, that's the thing coming back occasionally. I, you know, I have a lot of people who are in recovery on the podcast and we try and talk about, um, that moment where you're the moment where you identify that you're out of control or the moment you identify that, like, I have to change or that, like, I'm not driving this van anymore. And the, um, and in the after school specials, it's when an addict makes a decision to quit, it's always one moment, you know, the, where they're like, Oh my God, you know, and it's the fucking lightning bolt from God. And then absolutely. There's like a rock bottom and then you decide. And I actually used to have a bit where I would talk about how people, uh, always want to hear that story. Like what happened? What was the, the rub when they find out that you're like in recovery or that you were an addict, they're like, what happened? And I would always be like, well, I mean, I don't really have one. Like I just slowly one by one stopped, doing them and then when there were only a few left i stopped altogether and then they're like disappointed and you're like i'm sorry that i never sucked anyone's dick for drugs <laughs> i don't know i the, apologize i suck their dick because i'm a good friend that's i my rock bottom was like one of those far side calendars where it's like a comic a day i just had like a new rock bottom every day for like <laughs> 10 fucking years and finally, I, and I, I think when I quit, I finally, the, you know, it's like we were talking about like porn becoming background noise where I was just like the, I just, you know, I can't, I don't have it. I don't have the people are like, oh, you're so strong that you quit drinking. No, I, I quit out of weakness. I didn't have the strength to pick up another fucking drink and to go through that whole like rigmarole, you know? Yeah. Of, um, just the same bad night, like playing out over and over again. Um, in, in your seven year bender, did you feel like you were in pain or out of control or was it just the, 
you were just moving from one moment to the next or one day to the next or because I used to party and I had a great fucking time. The And that's, the, you know, that's the thing about drinking and drugs. People are like, oh, yeah, you know, the alcoholism's the worst. I, I drank for 35 years and it was torture. You know, it's like, bro, that, <laughs> some of that was fucking good times, you know? Right. So I was going to say it's it's definitely both. Like there were definitely times where uh, and like a lot of times where it was just uh i hated being sober sober was the the like in the way other people have periods of intoxication in a normal healthy life sober was that where it was sporadic and occasional and unwelcome when it was happening but it was totally a lot of uh just partying having a good time and years later, when I wasn't doing this anymore, friends would tell me that like they saw me chew up a fistful of 12 pills and they asked me what they were. And I said I wasn't sure. Uh, and they thought like Jay's suicidal and no one's doing anything about it. And then would tell me later, like, we thought that you were like attempting to kill yourself when you would do things like that. I was like, well, first off, thanks for intervening. Secondly, I was just trying <laughs> to have a good time. That was, that's all I thought I was doing. Because you do build up a tolerance once you're chewing up fistfuls of things. I I remember, um, you know, shaking out not a handful, a half handful of like Vicodin, and the um, I dropped one and I bent over to pick it up and I picked it up with like a pebble and I held the pebble in my palm with one finger and then threw the Vicodin back and yeah. then I Except looked you down. Didn't at my palm and there was a Vicodin in there and I yeah. swallowed the fucking rock. Did you get <laughs> fucked up? That's oh, what I yeah. wanted. The, I mean, the, the Vicodin worked. I don't know if the, I don't know if the pebble facilitated it, if it amplified it anything, <laughs> but it was just, you know, the, I mean, that was just, that was a fucking Thursday night or whatever, you know, right. The, um, was, uh, I, I could see you being, uh, a Coke guy or Adderall or Ritalin or shit like that. Or were you a painkiller dude or, uh, I mean, I liked painkillers a lot. The opposite, though, Coke, I did not like. Uh, I was not a big fan. A lot of uppers I wasn't too big on, except for caffeine, I like swear by. But yeah. uh, that's the acceptable drug. That's the working uh, upper. Right. Coke, I still did mountains of it. Like, don't, don't think me not liking something meant that I wasn't <laughs> doing it if it was present. But uh, I don't, that was, like, besides heroin... Heroin, I never used needles. Uh, when my wife and I were, were dating, it was maybe a couple months into our relationship, she finally got up the courage to ask me because she knew that there was a past but not specifics. And she said, so, like, what drugs have you done? And I said, I never smoked crack and I never used needles. She said, I asked you and I said, I know what you asked me. And she was like, all right. She takes a minute. She's kind of, like, digesting it. And she goes, I guess if there's two that you're never going to do, Crack and heroin are good ones to choose to never do. And then I went, yeah, I didn't say I never did heroin. <laughs> I heard that loophole immediately. Yep. <laughs> and she was like, oh, my God. I was like, it wasn't last week. All right. This was I was like 17 years old. Uh, and that was actually the friend of mine that I was doing it with. We had done it 10, 12 times uh, over the course of two, three months. And we were like blowing it. And then the people that we knew that we were getting it from were becoming and then extremely addicted to it and like junkies mm -hmm. we were watching people become junkies and it hit a point where 
my buddy that I was doing it with was like, I feel like we are at a point right now where we could stop if we wanted to. But if we don't, we turn into that. And he was like, and I want to stop, but I need you to stop with me because if we don't, like if you don't, I'm going to, if you want to keep doing it, I'm going to. I was like, yeah. cool, let's stop. And then we went and did other drugs. Like it wasn't like we were making good decisions at that point, but it was like one one small drop in the bucket. And then that kind of started, it wasn't for like many, many years that I would write another one off entirely. That kind of started that that was the method that I was going to get sober, was that one, I would just feel like I was done with and make the decision that I wasn't going to do it again. And Coke was, I think, the next one. And it was like several years after that. But I think Coke was the next one that I was like, I don't ever need to do this drug again. I'm okay with it. I, um, in my head, I'm imagining, uh, Kara's dating profile where she was like <laughs> trying to the, if you can find me, uh, a, uh, an acerbic, uh, high school dropout with a history of hardcore drug abuse. Did she Do lose a bet? Do you think we met through online <laughs> dating? Do you know how bad I look on paper? I am all in-person charisma. I rely on this entirely. <laughs> Is she just like, uh, you know, devoted to community service where she was like, I'll scoop this troubled youth off the streets? I uh, Listen, you had your handicapped cat and she has hers. Okay. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's one, another similarity that we've, uh, we're definitely both enthusiastic fans of dating up. The, oh, for sure. Yeah. I, I, I love that. The, um, do you it's, hear the lives that we are describing? If we dated our <laughs> equals, we would be with garbage people. It's it's funny too because when you're um you know when you're describing some of these scenes and some of these scenarios, the um you know you're talking about you know your friends watching you take a handful handful of pills on stage. I, it instantly part i've been sober for 13 years instantly part of my brain was like oh man it's too bad i didn't know jay back then like we could have toured together or like you know <laughs> the he would have been the guy to get fucked up with me when everybody else in the other bands was like man what the fuck is wrong with that guy you know totally but, i was i was all about pushing personal limits and uh being your own guinea pig and yeah. seeing seeing how far you can you can push it dude i i i had a drug buddy in New York and I remember one night we hit a bunch of pills and we just chopped, like we weren't doing the individual pills. We just chopped them all up together into like a multicolored line of sort of powder and gravel and did like sure, uh, yeah. lady in the tramp, uh, like meeting in the mid, like fucking with dollar bills, like meeting in the middle of it. <laughs> totally. You did like a, why did they separate the three flavors of fun dip? Let's put them all together. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't deserve to be alive the, just for, not for the danger of that, but just the fucking stupidity, you know, the, um, absolutely should have had a heart attack. I feel that in a big way. Uh, every time that I get like a cold or a flu and need to take regular cough and cold medicine now, uh, my body decides that I should wake up at like two o'clock in the morning and feel like I'm tripping because that is what I used to use those medicines for. I um I drank so much uh, Robitussin cough syrup when I was a teenager that I was like driving with my sister and her kids and one of them put a cherry cough drop 
uh, in you know in their mouth, and I was like, "Fucking roll all the windows down!" And I yeah, pulled over like you were gonna and made puke. them, yep. yeah, and made them spit it out because I was like, "I'm fucking starting to shake and sweat." Like I spit it out. I can't. I can't deal with that smell. The here's the generation gap, and it's beautiful. That it's not that I never chugged a bottle of Robitussin, but my go-to was the three C's Coraceed and cough and cold for high blood pressure people because that was my generation's magic little pill, and it had uh, a sugar coating on it. You would take eight of them, which is like the equivalent of a, a bottle of Robitussin or whatever. I think there might have been 16 in a pack. You took a whole pack if you really wanted to get high. There were several times where I took 32, two full packs. Uh, my liver, I don't know why why it's still <laughs> working. I have no clue. But they had a sugar coating on them uh, like Advil. And now to this day, if I if I let it sit on the tongue for a little too long and I taste that flavor, I will dry heave. Yeah. Yeah, we... Um... When I was a kid, when I was sixteen, a friend's band put out a seven inch called uh, the Four Fluid Ounce Euphoria, which was describing the and I, it wasn't even uh, Robitussin anymore. We were doing Tussin, the generic. Uh, sure, yeah, great value brand. Still yeah, in there, still yeah, exactly got DXM. Like um, and I, I, fuck, it wasn't it wasn't Cumberland Farms that we stole it from, but it was the it was you know some pharmacy or whatever that eventually we had to put it behind the counter. But the we would do you know four fluid ounces of uh, extra strength. And then we switched to doing the capsules, which had, which also had ephedrine in it. So your heart mm. would just be like a fuck. And I took so much of that once that I actually, I was like, we were driving around on my friend's Volkswagen rabbit or something. And I looked over and I saw a guy in a hooded sweatshirt hanging from like the, not hanging vertically, hanging like off the side of a lamp. And the, and then he pulled his hood back and it was me. <laughs> And I was like, oh, fuck. The, um, yeah, I, yeah, that's what I, I guess I took too much. But, but I, did you, when you were a kid, did you ever, did your parents ever give you a Dramamine? Yeah, for sure. Because I actually have a very uh, sensitive stomach and uh, a little bit still as an adult. Not like I did when I was a kid, but I was very prone to like motion sickness. So yes, they did. And then when I was in the time period that we were just talking about, of course, I know where you're going with this. I did try eating way too much of it to trip out, and I always fell asleep. Ah, yeah. The taking it, I never took it as an adult, but taking that as a kid is like, <laughs> sorry, mom, one of my legit happiest childhood memories, <laughs> just being like in the back seat with my dad driving like safe and tripping my fucking balls off with my, like, with my family when I was like six. <laughs> When when I was a teenager, and this is, if it wasn't, like, in the middle of, because me getting prescriptions was definitely a part of Let's Gobble Up Big Fistfuls of Pills. Uh, if I started getting it before there was, like, a drug problem active, uh, it was definitely still happening when that was. My doctor prescribed me Ambien because I had uh, trouble sleeping. And I was a teenager. I was, like, 16. They gave me Ambien. Oh, God. And... Uh, I ate it and loved it and like would not sleep, but would feel great while I was still not sleeping. So I would go into the doctor and he would be like, how's the Ambien working? And I would be like, great, more please. Uh, you're like, the Ambien's great, but I need something so I can sleep. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but so very similar where it was like, yeah, everything's, everything's fine. This is wonderful. And you're just kind of secretly riding out like you're taking what you're supposed to, but so the what finally led you to comedy? Like, did did you just run out of drugs? You were like, uh, the is comedy your rock bottom? No. 
<laughs> Comedy was such an early love, man. The first time I saw, and I want to say it might have been Jerry Seinfeld. If it wasn't, it was Bill Cosby, which I always point <laughs> out is ironic now. But when I was a kid and in like the Christian household, and I'm talking like five, six years old, the first time that I saw like comedy on TV and realized that was a job that you could have telling jokes and making people laugh. Uh, the, it all had to be clean. So like Seinfeld and Cosby were like the people I was allowed to watch when I was a kid. Uh, and I just, I loved it, man. I fell in love with it. When I was in second grade, when I started doing open mics and stuff, I had a buddy who was one of my oldest friends, was in second grade with me, came out to an open mic. He was like, this is really cool because I remember in second grade, our teacher asked what you want to be when you grow up, and you said a stand-up comedian. I was like, I fucking meant it, dude. And there was definitely a time period in between there when I'm talking about being in a band where it uh, it wasn't like important to me anymore, not something that I really wanted to do because I was, I was partying. I was having a good time. I wanted to be cool, not funny, uh, and all, all that stuff. And then... After the band dissolved and I was kind of doing uh, like home recording of my own music and everything, I started writing uh, comedy. It was really my big three and you cool comics can talk shit to me about Seinfeld all you want. The man is fucking talented and understands the craft and writing in a way that we can all benefit from from watching a little bit of. That dude's still still one of them. Carlin, when I heard him was like the glass shattered and it was i didn't know you could do it this way then it was several years later i discovered Patton oswald and he was because i was an adult at this point he was the one that made me go from man i would really like to do that one day to like let's get writing because you can apparently do it this way uh-huh. so I-, I wrote for a good few years before i actually got on stage because it was a i just need to do it type of thing and i kept not doing it and so the first time I did an open mic, I had about 15 minutes written and I did the best five and it went pretty all right. It went pretty well. Uh, so, of course, I'm here. I am 13 years later because that's all it takes. It's the first time to be all right. And you're like, yep, this is my life now. That felt great. I, I mean, honestly, Jay, you're a very good comedian. You're very funny. You're Thanks, um, buddy. you're you're like a shortstop of a comic in that uh, you can do you can do all the things the and it's so gratifying to hear you say i wrote forever before i got up there and tried it because there are so many people who are just like the only yeah, way you're going to say something good you know people who are like yeah i'm drunk fuck it i'll give it a shot you know and get up there and then they suck and then i think they're like determined to um oh, i'll show them and then they just sort of keep going like out of a sense of revenge of like the, you know, white, you know, the horse bucked me the first time. So I'm just going to keep getting back up there until I without realizing how much work goes into the, the back end of it, of writing and crafting the jokes. And, you know, there is absolutely uh, some degree of what you're talking about, though. And I think a lot of people rely on that, that there are things you can learn. There is stage presence, there is timing, there is uh, just watching people's reactions to different things. There are cheap laughs that you can get. There's lots of stuff that can be learned behavior that if you are the the bad guy at an open mic and you pay enough attention, you'll get paid work, man. You're, there's enough that is kind of a science to it where if you're good at that, you'll be able to trick a lot of people into thinking that you're 
you're good at it. But ultimately, yeah, I I preach nonstop that like writing and and rewriting and then murdering your beloved thing that you wrote by scrapping 75% of it is the only way to to really get something worth uh not worth listening to but uh, that sounds way too high and mighty but like to that's the process for me anyway is to to get that good little nugget is you're starting with writing something way too long and then you're cutting it down a million times but but the frustrating thing i think is that the writing is just half of it and then the other half is so it's so hard like it's easy to say um, you need to watch comics. You need to fucking diagram jokes. You need to sort of break it down. You need to write and rewrite and edit and all that stuff. That's you know that's like very teachable stuff. Mm. But um, like Glenn Wool will will raise one fucking eyebrow and <laughs> sell a joke just from that. Sure. You know? And there's um, uh, you know Jake Flores will say mispronounce one you know one word in a absolutely. Um, uh, theatrical way he he used to do a, a joke about um getting his news from uh buzzfeed.com you know the and he would just mispronounce it and right I, I was on the road with him i saw the fucking saint the joke every single night and every night it popped me and it it drove me nuts because um intellectually i'm trying to parse like what's what's fucking happening there like, why is that funny? And why does it, you know, the, like, it's like, I know that it's, com- it's like a jump scare that you know that it's coming. And then if you sure. jump anyway, the, yep. and it was, you know, it's maddening to me to not be able to, to break it down, but there is something that's sublingual or superlingual, or there's an, an animal or just, or magic, you know, it's like the, you know the the flip books we you know uh comic books where you would you would flip it and you would see the guy you know start to run or whatever um those are just static drawings but if you flip it at the right tempo at a certain point magic happens and that character starts to move and the that's the shit that i'm super interested in trying to to freeze it and to be able to you know identify it and pick it apart and it's so it's so hard to to pin it down why some people can just uh can just kill with a joke and somebody else could tell the same joke and it would just it just dies on their lips you know yes but let me express gratitude that you feel like you're not able to pick this apart and break it down because what you're talking about is taking something fun and enjoyable and making it not so <laughs> I mean, that's what I do for a career. You're like man. I was <laughs> laughing and smiling and I was like can't have that let's think about why this is happening well, if you, uh, this is so I, I have this I have, you know, lots of bullshit theories, but one of the bullshit theories that I have is um, that one of the reasons that comedians are, you know, such fucking sociopaths is because what um, what we're actually trying to do is break down, you know, sort of ordinary organic human behavior of somebody, you know, um, somebody tells a joke or cracks a line. The other people laugh that somebody else makes a comment, tags it, whatever, you know, the um, is to break down break it down to its all its fundamental parts in the same way that a sociopath who is unable to express genuine emotion will observe people around them and be like oh she tilts her head like this when she does that that means this so it's like we're studying it and so in the same way it's like sociopaths study human expression in order to pass at being human and if comics do it for too much we turn into sociopaths 
you know. For sure. Uh, turn into, first off. <laughs> well, yeah. Let me, <laughs> Maybe that's let me the drop a little science on anyone <laughs> who's ever set foot on a comedy stage. There's something wrong with you. Uh, but yeah, what what you were talking about, about uh, like watching comedy and, and studying it and diagramming layouts and structures of jokes. I did shit like that for all through junior high and high school. Comedy Central was my I studied comedy as an art form and would would draw those similarities of, oh, that is the same structure that this person uses for this joke, but they moved these ingredients. They did this. Interesting. And then kind of uh, it was very much that breaking it down and seeing like you're talking about making it not fun, seeing the science behind (laughs) the thing that seeing a crowd laugh and then me cynically sitting there going, why are people happy about this? Let's figure (laughs) that out. But then there's a whole nother side to it. That's the, sociopathy that you're talking about that is you need to then uh observe the way real human beings are responding when the words are coming out of your mouth where it's a conversational thing where now you are categorizing types of people that you know and the things that they find funny and how you get the really big belly laugh out of certain personalities and things like that it is entirely sociopathic behavior and categorizing human beings I was uh, I was talking to my writing students once and we were talking, you know, and I was saying, you know, what we're trying to do with writing is to put, you know, words, to, the right words together in the right order in order to force someone to feel an emotion, you know, and when um, when you can get your reader to uh, to cry, that's one of the strongest emotions possible. And that's, um, and, you know, and that's one of the things that's like really rewarding and it's it's complex and it's also like very simple and the you want people to cry kill the dog and (laughs) everybody looked at me just fucking horrified and i was like i have said too much I, I, i i went i went i gave away too much i went too deep i the like don't yeah don't don't kill the dog don't kill the dog the um but I, I remember being on tour when I was just starting out, actually, like, I mean, when I started out, I was just playing songs and then telling depressing stories from my life between them. And I still do a lot of that. But now I actually, like, tell jokes. Like, it's it's not just all nonfiction now. There's there's fiction in there as well or elements of fiction. And when I was just start learning to do that or just starting to do that, I was on the road with uh, with JT and Ron Babcock. And I was like taking a nap in the back while I think Ron drove. And I woke up and they were talking about um, tags and callbacks and sort of like the different words we use to identify parts of a joke and how a joke is structured and stuff like that. And I remember waking, waking up to it and thinking it was like so fascinating. And then now... I wish I'd slept through that and never. What a pretentious conversation to wake up to. Yeah, <laughs> but I love that shit. I love you know um, when I was on the road with Jake, like we would uh, we would just take. I mean, we would spend a fucking two hours at without a break in the van diagramming one joke or one bit and like sort of workshopping it and and cutting it up and stuff to see um, how it could work, how it could work better. 
And Jake being Jake, motherfucker would never settle on one static. This is the ultimate. This is the greatest hits. This is the best version of this joke. He had to fucking change it every night and tweak it every night. And I kept being like, no, Jake, just get it. The, um, but that's what well, he's Well, yeah, because what if you know? the thing you thought of is better? What if, what yeah, if it could yeah. be better? Yeah. You're never done writing a joke. That's the thing. Is it's That's the big difference between... Being someone who writes a bit and being someone who writes a book is a book. Once it's on the page, it's done. The bit is never done. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was trying to do like taxidermy and he was like trying to, trying to train the dog, trying to get the dog to do tricks or whatever (laughs) that he would be, um, you know, adapting the, not changing his fucking politics if we played at a cowboy bar or a gay bar, you know, but the, but adapting the, you know, um, selecting the order, curating the, the set. Absolutely. The, There's certain know, words that you room. can avoid saying that will yeah. elicit a reaction and. Totally. Yeah. There's you, you don't change who you are or what you're saying, but you can change how you're saying it for, yeah. to better suit the crap. Yeah. The. One of the things that I really admire about your stuff is that I feel like, like me, you hate a lot of shit, mm. but um, unlike me, you do it with great enthusiasm. Yes, I am. Um, your, your hatred of the world brings to, seems to bring you like real joy. I am so joyfully hateful. Yeah, that is a <laughs> wonderful way to describe it. Yeah. It's uh, it's fun. It's fun to shit on stuff, man. It's, it's especially if you're good at it. That's totally just the the 90s pop culture dork mentality never growing out of me. Where it's yeah, I like to I like to make fun of stuff. And uh I'll take it a step further. The things that you hate, uh what makes it fun? Get to know them. Like if you hate a band, listen to their album and earn that fucking hatred. People all the time, uh, I'll be talking shit about 311, and people will be like, it sounds like you know a lot about 311. And I'm like, they used to be one of my favorite bands. I'm very good at making fun of these people because of the familiarity. When uh, when we were talking before before the show and you said that the the new mix that I have uh, dips into Sublime for a second, I was like, I, we're, I'm going to cancel the podcast. It's <laughs> <laughs> like this stop this there was a moment <laughs> before there were elements of the song that you had me listen to that needed to kick in for me to feel like i had the whole sonic experience and they hadn't yet and i had a little rip dip diddle acoustic guitar <laughs> and i had hip-hop drums and i was like it we're getting a little uncle cracker we're getting just a little bit 90s acoustic radio where it was everything had those that hip-hop beat behind it but then i i told you i loved the song that you had me listen to because uh the other elements elevated it past it, it very quickly fixed itself uh josh mclean said something about uh he was like oh i you know i like this mix because you ditched the the everlast thing and i was like i like everlast and he was like and the, you know the g love and the special sauce and i was like i hate that band <laughs> so those to me are in the exact same vein of what i'm talking about the whole sublime uncle cracker they're part of that venn diagram the yeah it's yeah it's so weird that 90s rock i mean i guess it's not weird that it's old i fucking the you live long enough you get old that's how the shit works you know the but that it's um that i that people are sort of selectively fetishizing the nineties now without addressing like Candlebox, 
you know, or <laughs> just some of these, you know, sort of seven horrific, Mary three. Yes. <laughs> some of these horrific, the, I mean, I, uh, I tried to date a girl for a minute who was like really into third eye blind and I don't want to be a judgmental prick about music because there's so much music that I like that I have a hard time defending. And I think too, that music at its core is good that, you know, and the, the, the point of music is to, to enjoy it. It's not to fucking be a snob about it or like chop it up. It's to, it's just to give yourself over to it. And the, you know, if you're, if you're in the mall and some fucking pop music is playing on the radio, you know, over the speakers, you can choose to enjoy it and have a pleasant experience or fucking be a dick about it. And the, and then you're me, but the, but third eye blind was just, man, just, it was a stumbling block. It was real. I've I've let this entire episode go on without ever doubling back to uh, call you a douchebag for being like, oh, Jay doesn't like Alice in Chains. But let me instead take the opportunity <laughs> to tell you that first Third Eye Blind album's pretty good, man. It's not oh, bad. Oh, fuck, dude. The, yeah, I was like, I was like, oh man, this Jay buried the lead. Like we're now we're gonna in the in the final act of the podcast, we're gonna have like a you know a, a long mature discussion about the the real merits of Alice in Chains. Gonna and have an you, argument. You fucking in zigged chains. when I thought you were gonna zag, and I uh, yeah, it, man, such a colossal disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> that was my goal, honestly. That was what I was going for here. Now you know how the rest of us feel. Uh, no, I like that. Uh, <laughs> That big Third Eye Blaya album, I think, is I think is good and it has some fun songs on it. But uh, I'm very much a '90s alt rock apologist. Where I will, I I wouldn't say I'm part of the fetishizing uh, '90s alt rock. It's just that I loved it when it was happening, and there's so much of it that now there is a a little bit of a nostalgic lean where I didn't need to love the song that much. I'll throw it on now, like. The CDs are two bucks at Goodwill. I didn't like Dishwalla, but it's worth <laughs> it's worth two hundred cents to listen to it one more time while I'm smoking a joint or whatever. Yeah, yeah. The um, I feel like I was super serious in the late '90s, and I, I think I was just really, really hardcore obsessed with like Nick Cave and old Dylan and stuff like that. And I was listening to like Jonathan fire eater when a lot of people were listening to, uh, Eve six or, you know, whatever mm -hmm. the, um, I was listening to Eve six. One of our first tours, I brought, uh, that lit album that, that was very famous and dude, I still have for a JT and locked the doors in my car. We were at a diner and I wouldn't let him out. I was making him listen to it. I, I actually remember this the highlights from uh, JT touring with you and being like, oh my god, Jay's great dude, great comic, and the fucking music, Jesus Christ! I'm, <laughs> it's just the dude. I have a stack like this tall of lit stickers that I've been holding on to since like 1997 because my roommate at the time worked some PR job or whatever. They're in my filing cabinet. I'll send them to you with a bunch of uh, Archers of Loaf stickers. Thank you. <laughs> I actually I met. Um, I met Max Collins, the the dude from Eve Six, the singer, and he is like the nicest, funniest guy. Yeah, yeah, that's that's all I hear. Not what I hear about AJ Popoff, lead singer of Lit. I hear that guy's a <laughs> douche. And also, let me go ahead and tell you that they have a new album out. They went pop country for a couple of years to try to get some Republican money. And then they were like, oh, all the 90s kids are in their 30s now. We can... 
we can capture him again. We can get him to come out to shows. And they tried. They're like trying to push this new album like Lit's back. Lit sounds the way the way you want them to. Uh, wow, is this album bad. It is not good. I Sometimes I feel uh, weird about kind of giving up on music and allowing myself to just sort of taper off into obscurity. Not that I wasn't already tapering off into obscurity from the beginning. The But then I I see uh, artists who are sort of like still playing state fairs in, in their 50s. And I'm like, yeah. man, the no, just get a job at a fucking DMV or something. The It's the yeah, old Stanhope bit about people saying when someone like kills themselves young, like Kurt Cobain had so much more art to give us. It's like, maybe he didn't like, maybe if, uh, if Hendrix hadn't died, he would be playing uh state fairs right now and uh shit like that. And it's, it's true. You Give it up to Stanhope for fucking finding a bleak situation and finding a way to make it even bleaker. You know, the, <laughs> like the, what you think is the worst possible universe could actually be way worse. Uh, a guy, yeah, he has a gift. What, um, what do you have coming up this year? Are you touring? I, I saw you just had COVID around the same time that I did. The, Man, you- I had, I had a month of fun shows lined up. I had Off with Their Heads and Ben Roy coming through. And then uh, the day after that, I was headlining a Don't Tell show here in New Hampshire. And then I had a weekend of shows in Maine and back down here. And every show in in August that I had booked, one got canceled pre-COVID. The rest of them were all like either I was sick or I was still testing positive or things like that. September, I have have some cool stuff on the pike. We have the... The New Hampshire Granite State Comic Con. I'm going to be running some like Q&A panels that I'm actually pretty psyched about. That's going to be a fun little uh, detour from just doing stand-up. And also, like I get to I get to talk to like Doug, Doug Jones and stuff. So that's going to be real fun. Uh, later that week is, is my birthday at my hometown spot. Uh, the Shaskeen has always been kind of my comedic home base. And uh, Wednesday, 921, I turn 37 years old. And Wednesday happens to be when my favorite show in the state happens. So I'm going to headline that, have a little little birthday party show. And then October is uh, is altercation. Wow. Yeah. The um, I have a bunch of stuff happening again, which is so weird. It's the because um, I, I, I do remember it. I, I remember some of my bits. I remember some of my songs. I'm trying to sort of like get it back together. I'm doing a couple of shows with David Dondero and he's just uh, like a straight, you know, sort of traveling songwriter, um, you know, troubadour. So it's not as much, I'm not going to hit as much of the funny shit. And it gives me an opportunity to play the more sort of serious, depressing stuff, which I love the, <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I have to, uh, I have to write a bunch of shit to, to do at altercation. And it's just going to be, old man covid lockdown jokes about my cat and my dog and the you know it's like i went from having this life that was just in fast forward all the time living on the road where your brain doesn't have an opportunity to parse all the bad weird you know shitty funny stories that happen before something else happens right and then now i'm like yeah, maybe I will watch Criminal Minds again from the start, you know. <laughs> oh man, it's worth it for the Mandy Patinkin seasons. Yeah, absolutely. Guys, wonderful. Also, Are, I want to promise everybody that despite Mishka being like I'm working on this material, it's all gonna be like COVID and cats, there will be good acts at altercation. Too. You should still come, <laughs> please. 
it is uh it it is a pretty fucking uh great lineup this year and i'm gonna I'm, I'm actually tapping a bunch of people from uh which is that's the only reason i got around to you finally is that i was like oh wait jay's on uh the i remember jay that no the, <laughs> i what, one of the problems is the and listen this is a good problem and i'll be honest about this, this is a good problem is that when i'm choosing um guests i look at all the people who i think of in the first wave and then I, i'm like Oh, these are all fucking straight white dudes who are wearing a black hoodie long after it's appropriate. And I need to I need to fucking shake it up a little bit. And the um and it's pushed me to go outside my sort of bitter punk rock dude circle of um guys I know and you know reach out to get a little just a little sprinkling of the old diversity. The So you're telling me there's listenable episodes of this podcast? The, I had Josh McLean on. <laughs> I listened to that one. Yeah. The yeah. Um, are you uh, are you recording anything new or do you want to? Um... So uh, eventually, yeah. I what happened is I was almost ready to record when when COVID hit. I almost had like the the new hour ready to go, and then uh, not performing for over a year, and then going back to it was not only were the cobwebs back on all of the material but a lot of it i was like not psyched about doing anymore and uh working on new stuff that i wanted to replace it with and that i was excited about so i mean understandably it was like a five-year gap in between my first diy album and uh my second one the texas chinois saw massacre which is on stand-up records uh next one will be on stand-up as well but my goal was for there to be a less than five year gap in between album two and album three. I wanted to kind of streamline the process and then uh, a virus took two years away. So it was like very easy to make it be the same yeah. kind of time frame, And that's probably what we're looking at again. I was hoping I would be ready to record this year. It's probably going to be next year. Yeah. I, um, I was supposed to go and record something for audible in New York and that, that that went away forever, but the but also I mean it, it it some of the shit the you know it's like if you recorded something in the fall of 2019 and then you were gonna try and put it out in 2020 you're a jackass because everything changed and none of that shit will hit the way that it did then you know right um the well, let's get out of here the can we uh, can we play a song of yours at the end of the at the end of the show here uh sure <laughs> all right so you'll uh, you'll send me a song. I'll we'll, send you uh, something that we'll tack on at the end here. And, uh, and where can, uh, where can people find you? Um, so I, I had a website years ago and, uh, <laughs> it, uh, has not been like correct or working for a very long time. And it's like, this website doesn't exist. Uh, it's not online. And people are always like, Oh, your website's down. I'm like, who fucking goes to a website anymore? Just, I'm on Instagram. It's at Jay Shenoyne. I'm on Twitter. It's at Jay Shenoyne. I'm on Facebook. It's Jay Shenoyne. People are always like, oh, and that's real easy to spell and for people to remember. If you want to be a fan of mine, put in one fucking iota of effort. Learn how to spell my goddamn name. C-H-A-N-O-I-N-E. <laughs> it's really not that hard. People have names that are far more complicated than this that are doing just fine. J.T. Hoobersuit has told me plenty of times, you have a difficult to remember last name. Like, All right, Dutch boy. But uh, <laughs> Everybody slips yeah, the extra T in there. <laughs> it's a whole uh how many umlauts are in your last name sir i uh he gets the extra it's all the social C. media places yeah uh, jay thanks so much for doing this man 
For sure, dude. Thanks for having me. Turns out this was an enjoyable experience. <laughs> I, I, I wish I'd, I'd heard that more often. I will, uh, I'll see you at Altercation, my friend. Absolutely.
folks thank you so much for listening i know there's uh some million podcasts out there we appreciate you uh you spending your time with us the um if you're digging the show if you're enjoying it if you if these conversations uh move you make you laugh annoy you piss you off um, please take a minute to uh, to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, it helps us grow the show and it helps other people find it. Um, if you'd like to hear bonus episodes, song demos, just sort of uh, ranting off the cuff uh, conversations, all sorts of different uh, bonus material, writing advice, uh, personal blog posts and stuff like that. Uh, go to patreon.com slash Mishka Shabali. Uh, we will be having monthly episodes up there with my mom and I answering uh, questions from readers. And there's all kinds of good stuff there. Uh, thank you so much for supporting.